coming out tonight. Uh, my name is Gregory Rodriguez. I'm the founding director of Socolo Public Square. We are a project of the Center for Social Cohesion at Arizona State University. Uh, we're founded in uh, 2003. Um, and uh, we are, uh, sorry, I forgot my notes already. And um, we're, we're essentially, we're founded in Los Angeles 2003, uh, but now we are based in Los Angeles and Phoenix and we roam across uh, both cities and, and whoever basically who will take us. We're thrilled to be here tonight in Tucson and to have garnered so much interest about an important subject. Um, we fancy ourselves a living magazine, uh, an innovative blend of on the ground events and online idea journalism. Our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. We present 50 completely free events every year, uh, um, and we actually follow each one of them with a free reception uh, under the really firmly held belief that to create community, you have to have a modicum of alcohol. Um, so <laughs> you are all invited afterward to speak further with each other and with tonight's guests. Um, you can also check us online at SokoloPublicSquare.org. Uh, I'd like to, uh, uh, before I introduce tonight's uh, moderator, I'd like to tell you about a few upcoming events if you happen to be traveling north or west or wherever it is. Uh, February 13th, we'll be at the ASU Art Museum in Tempe, where we're hosting former CNN Beijing and Tokyo bureau chief Rebecca McKinnon, who will be asking if our internet freedom is at risk and who is controlling our virtual world. We're back in Los Angeles on Wednesday, February 15th. The New Yorker's Catherine Boo will be joining us at the Skirball Center to bring us into Mumbai's poorest neighborhoods, where she found Surprisingly, much hope. On Friday, February 17th, former Dallas Cowboys quarterback Trey, Troy Aikman uh, will be joining us at, at, at the, the Los Angeles Museum of Contemporary Art. Um, he will be asking with others, is LA really ready for the return of the NFL? Uh, and finally, on February 22nd, uh, uh, New Yorker's Adam Gopnik and uh, Pulitzer Prize winning food critic Jonathan Gold uh, will be joining us at the Downtown Independent Theater in Los Angeles to talk about whether foodie culture does anyone any good. Uh, if you're in town, um, please join us. If you haven't already, please shut off your cell phone. Um, we will be selling books and ticketing books. We're very happy to say we'll be here. Thank you, sir. Selling copies of Eric Meek's Border Citizens, The Making of Indians, the Making of Indians Mexicans, and Anglos in Arizona. I have to do this because it gets you thinking about it. A Safeway in Arizona, a fantastic new book by Tom Zellner. It's a great book, isn't it? I reviewed it for the San Francisco Chronicle, so I feel really weird about being here. It was a good review, though, right? It was a great review. Thank you. <laughs> I was a little nervous. Uh, and, and, and a reissue, a revised edition of, uh, of Thomas Sheridan's much-respected Arizona, A History, will all be for sale outside in the lobby uh, by Antigone Books. Thank you, sir. Um, and now, uh, we're really pleased to uh, be hosting Mr. Jack Jewett. Uh, in June 2009, Jack Jewett joined the Flynn Foundation as president and CEO after serving as vice president for university advancement at California State University, Monterey Bay. He has served in a variety of leadership roles within the private, public, and nonprofit sectors in Arizona for more than 40 years. And, and many of you know that Tucson was his longtime home. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Jack Jewett. Well, I think this is going to be a fascinating uh, hour. And, and uh, first, my thanks to Zocalo uh, Public Square, which is Zocalo Zocalo, or Public Square Public Square, uh, for coming to Tucson. Uh, I think this is a first for Zocalo. 
and uh, uh, it's, it's a great treat to be back in Tucson at this wonderful Congress Hotel. Um, I, before I, well, let me first introduce our panel, uh, and, and then uh, I've got a few opening comments. There was a, uh, a little debate as to whether I'm a native or not, and uh, <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll give a little background on that, but let me introduce our, our wonderful panel. Uh, to my immediate uh, left is, is Dr. Eric Meeks. Uh, he's Associate Professor of History at Northern Arizona University and specializes in the history of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. Uh, he is the author of Border Citizens, The Making of Indians, Mexicans, and Anglos in Arizona. Uh, to Eric's left is uh, Tom Zollner. Uh, Tom is author of five nonfiction books, including A Safeway in Arizona, What the Gabrielle Giffords Shooting Tells Us About the Grand Canyon State and Life in America. A fifth-generation Arizonan, he is currently Associate Professor of English at Chapman University in Los Angeles. Uh, next is Dr. Laddie Coor, uh, Chairman and CEO of the Center for the Future of Arizona, which he founded in 2002 and also holds the Ernest W. McFarland Arizona Heritage Chair in Leadership and Public Policy at Arizona State University, where he served as President from 1990 to 2002. And, uh, and, and then uh, at, at the other end of the panel, uh, Dr. Uh, Thomas uh, Sheraton, Professor of Anthropology at the University of Arizona, research anthropologist at the university's Southwest Center. He's written or co-edited numerous books and monographs, including the forthcoming revised edition of Arizona at History, which you'll have the opportunity to purchase after uh, this event. Gregory asked me if I was a native Arizona, and, I, and, and technically I'm not. Um, uh, but the history of the Jewett family uh, goes back to World War II. A question that may come up is how many people here are natives of, of Arizona um, and uh, true natives? Uh, a few hands went up. Uh, so we're all here from, most of us are here from someplace else. Uh, so let me just share with you, uh, my mother and father came to Arizona, and the reason they came to Arizona was the Second World War. Uh, my father, uh, at the young age of 22 years old, was a commander of a B-24 uh, in, in, uh, in Europe. Uh, he survived that and came to Arizona uh, with uh, his young bride, Alice, uh, and was a B-24 flight instructor at Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. That's what brought the Jewetts here in, uh, in the early 40s. My brother Steve was born uh, in, so he truly is uh, 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 an Arizona native. He was born here in 1944. In fact, reflecting on all of this, uh, my parents lived just down the street uh, when they first came to Arizona. What brought us back to Arizona in 1963 uh, when I first uh, laid eyes on this place, uh, again, was the military. And my father uh, was a public information officer, and he had to explain to the Tucson community why there were intercontinental ballistic missiles uh, silos surrounding <laughs> the city of Tucson <laughs> aimed at Russia. And uh, uh, that was a pretty tough public relations strategic communications chore. Uh, but my parents wanted to come back to Arizona, 
the perceived opportunities here, the weather here brought them back uh, for that final assignment. My father retired from the military in 66. We started a newspaper and, and we've done some other things during that time. So uh, Tucson has a very special place uh, uh, for me. Uh, grew up here in business, uh, uh, was a member of the legislature. Maybe we'll get into some of these things. Served during a time when uh, there was an impeachment of Evan Meekum. Uh, there was an ASCAM scandal. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of history uh, that we have to talk about, but maybe we'll get into that. What I'd like to do uh, uh, first, though, is uh, turn to our panelists for maybe a, about a three-minute uh, reflection uh, on this topic uh, that we're charged with, uh, does Arizona history matter? And I'm reminded, and I'm going to start with Laddie, uh, with a famous quote from his provost, uh, uh, his, his provost, Mark uh, Milt Glick, who in response to a regental question, Laddie said, I don't know the answer to that question, but if I choose to answer it, it will be a very good answer. <laughs> so with that, does Arizona history matter? Dr. Coor. Thank you, Jack, and thank you, Gregory, for continuing with this program and uh, for bringing it to Tucson. I watched it with admiration and am pleased to be able to uh, talk, uh, uh, be a part of it. Uh, I'd like to ask, answer that question by a personal observation building on Jack's uh, introduction. Uh, I have a very interesting Rip Van Winkle experience with this state. Uh, born here, raised here, little bitty migrant labor community, uh, Avondale, actually Coldwater was the name when I was first uh, born, lived there, uh, and uh, went all the way through school here, uh, to, uh, ending up with, uh, at Arizona State College Flagstaff with 800 students, and then in the late 50s, I went off to seek my fortune as an academic. Uh, while I stayed close to my family in those years, I was away 32 years. And I came back in 1990 to ASU, and I wondered, so much has changed if just looking at Phoenix, it was, if it was 150,000 when I left the state, they were probably fibbing a little bit. And here it was, 2 million. What is this place? I found the characteristics that I had long cherished, the fact that people were open. They didn't ask where you were from, but what you could do. There was a sunniness, not just because of the climate, but because of what they were doing. And there was this sense that the future was ours. There was nothing to stand in the way. Most importantly to me, as I assumed the presidency at ASU, I found people in the legislature you could talk with, and that would talk with one another. Art Hamilton, Jack Jewett, Jackie Steiner, Chris Hurstam, you, 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 you know the people, I hope some of them, but I found this wonderful, refreshing view that serious people were willing to be serious about what our future could be. And things actually went well for a couple of years when something happened. I'm still not sure what happened. The first thing that happened was a decision to require a supermajority to raise taxes, but a simple majority to cut taxes, and we set out cutting taxes for 15 consecutive years. The second thing that happened is that people 
stop speaking to one another in the way that we thought you would do to solve problems. And as time has gone on, the gulf between the two parties, and even I sense the gulf between the leadership and its membership, particularly in the legislature, has, uh, has increased in a way that makes the conversation about what our future ought to be uh, very much in question. I believe history is important because I know what people did from the time this place became a territory. My mother lived here in that era. My wife Elva's family lived here beginning in the 1870s. And what we did together, coming through the depths of the Depression, the Second World War, where we captured some assets that we could build on for the future, and the building of great universities with strong schools. That history is the history that we should not only remember, but replicate, or rather build upon as we move into the future. My hope is we can do it, but my view is a lot of us, all of us, are going to have to join in that endeavor in order to make it happen. I didn't bring a book tonight, but I'll plug a project that I would suggest you take a look at if you're interested in it. It's called The Arizona We Want. It's on the website of our future, thearizonawewant.org. And take a look at what citizens say about this state. They love it here. They think the future is ours, and yet it's not reflected in the policy discussions and in the personal interactions of too many leaders in responsible positions in this state. Thank you, Laddie. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Tom Sheraton, we talked a little bit about uh, some of these topics uh, uh, before the panel. Uh, would you care to amplify on, on, on Laddie's comment, particularly the, that something happened uh, step in, in your reading of Arizona history politically? Well, I mean, to get back to the, the title of this panel tonight, Does Arizona History Matter? I think the fact that we had so few natives here is a good indication of why we need to have an understanding of this state. Because if we don't know where we, where we came from, then we certainly will not have any idea about where we're going. And uh, my family moved to, to Arizona in 1955. So like Jack, I'm not a native, but I moved here when I was three years old. So I'm kind of a quasi-native. And uh, in my 57 years here in Arizona, I've seen enormous changes, some good, some bad. But I think that we have been losing ground since the 1980s, economically and politically. Uh, I think one of the turning points was when one of the real pillars of the Republican Party, uh, Burton Barr, uh, lost the Republican primary to Evan Meekum. Now, Burton Barr was the consummate insider. Uh, Jack told me that uh, he was a mentor to Jack and other young legislators. Uh, we used to produce leaders like Burton Barr, like Sandra Day O'Connor, who, uh, when she was the first woman to, to be the majority leader of the Arizona Senate, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. She had the temerity to actually invite Republicans and Democrats over to her house for dinner. 
where they would sit and discuss common problems and also get to know one another. But in, in I think it was 1986, uh, I think that we had become such a transient society. There were figures that for every 10 Arizonans who moved into the state in the early 1980s, seven had left a decade later. We were such a transient population that we had no political culture, we had no historical memory, and uh, Mecham, who, who was kind of a perennial joke in Arizona politics, you know, he would run for governor or senator in every election, he'd get maybe 10 or 15 percent of the vote. He, you know, he wasn't considered, uh, you know, a major political leader. He was actually able to beat Burton Barr. And I think ever since then, we've seen our, our state politics slowly disintegrate. Now, every so often, we elect uh, uh, a centrist like Janet Napolitano. But most of the time, I just see us getting more and more and more polarized. Uh, for the last 15 years, I've been working in the collaborative conservation movement trying to bring ranchers and environmentalists and uh, sportsmen together to find common ground rather than to keep focusing on the issues that divide them. We haven't had common ground in Arizona at the state political level for a very long time now. Because of that, we don't have the kind of visionary political and business leadership that can get us the knowledge economy or the, you know, the high-tech economy that so many people say that we should be attracting. You know, back in the 1950s, Grady Gamage and Daniel Noble of Motorola got together with the political leaders because Daniel Noble of Motorola knew that in order to, to attract what were then cutting-edge high-tech industries, that Arizona had to produce its own engineers and IT specialists. So we had this broad agreement that a strong public education system was absolutely essential to the history of this state. Now we are sprinting towards the bottom in every educational measure, every economic measure, uh, and though we talk about trying to attract the science uh, economy and, you know, we talk about Metro Phoenix becoming the so-called sun corridor, to be provocative, I think that Mike Davis's Planet of the Slums is a more accurate description of where we're heading. And I think we all better wake up and we better organize and we better take back control of this state if we want to have any kind of a future that we can be proud of. Thank you. Uh, Tom Zollner, you, um, you got me thinking a lot about uh, does Arizona history matter uh, when I had the pleasure of meeting with you about a year ago as you were preparing for, uh, for your book. And um, uh, you caused me to reflect uh, deeply on the history of Northwest Tucson, where you grew up and where I uh, started my professional career. Does Arizona history matter? 
Well, uh, for, for those of you who didn't uh, raise your hands to, to Jack's opening question, uh, I can tell you that uh, you can be a native and still be a stranger. Um, uh, my family moved here, uh, and my family goes back in Arizona before statehood. And we moved to Tucson in 1980 to uh, the neighborhood, Jack, that you described. Uh, this particular corner of it uh, was and is called Shadow Hills, uh, which could be anywhere in USA, really. Uh, the streets in there were uh, named things like uh, Calier Alberca, which uh, means the street of the swimming pool, uh, and uh, Camino Padre Isidoro. To this day, I have no idea who Father Isidoro was. Uh, if anyone can tell me, I'll be grateful because this is a lifelong mystery to me. And this is a neighborhood that had been uh, created by a Texas uh, mega corporation, U.S. Homes, had done it very quickly, bladed those streets out of the native Sonoran Desert, and created a, a community for uh, newcomers, uh, certainly people like us, newcomers to Tucson. We had moved on from, uh, from Phoenix. And uh, this is a place, as, as Laddie said, that's uh, deeply woven within the narrative is, is this idea that you can come here and, and be, be who you want to be, to, to reinvent yourself in this, this land of pleasant sunshine and, and opportunity. And these are good things. Uh, but one uh, feature of this in Arizona is this uh, does come with uh, a certain social cost. Uh, when you up and move yourself, uh, you are by definition uh, planting yourself in a place where you don't have those strong social connections, which uh, tend to create the mature political structures uh, that would uh, prevent such things as, uh, as you say, uh, Tom, that uh, uh, in that 1986 election, which was pivotal, uh, there was a complete lack of a sense of history in Arizona. Uh, Evan Meekham campaigned on uh, really a, a kind of a monolithic anti-tax platform. And uh, most of the people who voted in that Republican primary uh, had not lived in Arizona longer than five years and had no sense of where Evan Meekham was really coming from, no sense of uh, the, the, the wealth of institutional knowledge that Burton Barr had brought with him. And uh, Arizona elections, uh, I'm afraid roughly dated from that point, uh, really have tended to favor uh, the voluble and those who sort of want to charge in and come up with radical solutions to what they perceive as radical problems. But uh, a sense of history about Arizona will tell you that we've been already having this discussion uh, for more than 100 years, uh, more than 200 years, actually. Uh, we have uh, a, a rich uh, ethnic history here. Uh, we have a rich corporate history. Um, we have uh, a bit of a hidden history, actually. Um, uh, Gabrielle Giffords, uh, who, uh, whose campaign I was privileged to work on in 2006 and in 2010, uh, was shot along with uh, 18 others uh, at a Safeway store near where I grew up, about uh, two and a half miles. Uh, La Toscana Village is the name of this shopping center. For whatever reason, I don't know, I just became fascinated with this. Um, here, here is a, a, a place whose name derives from Tuscany. Uh, its, it's architectural features are, are completely alien to the state of Arizona. What is this doing here? I looked deeper and found actually a quite rich history with La Toscana Village, uh, what seems like a non-place, uh, a place dropped out of nowhere uh, into this land of blank sunshine. And um, the, the, the fact is that uh, it is completely in the character of post-war Arizona. Uh, the man who developed it, Sam Namini, 
was uh, a newcomer from Chicago, uh, seeking a new way of life, and he brought with him a, a big, tidy sum of very questionable money <laughs> to develop this shopping center. Um, they got the county to route uh, an underground wash through the area in exchange for paving the parking lot. So there's an underground river underneath that Safeway, a dry underground river, but a river nonetheless. And that, to me, seems like a metaphor for much of what we deal with in Arizona, that there is an underground river over which we've paved a Safeway parking lot. <laughs> and to understand Arizona, you need to understand that river. Thank you, Tom. Uh, well, before we probe uh, further, uh, you know, Dr. Meeks, uh, from your perspective, does Arizona history matter? And, 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 and you've written extensively on our borders, uh, our heritage, uh, our people. Yeah, and you know, I like what Tom had to say that you can still be a native and be a stranger. Um, I am a native of Arizona. I was born in Phoenix and grew up in north central Phoenix, or at least what we used to call North Phoenix, um, around Northern and Central Avenue. Uh, my parents were transplants from uh, Akron, Ohio, so they were kind of part of one of those mass migrations, one of the great migrations in some ways in American history from the old Rust Belt, the upper Midwest, into, into the Sun Belt. Um, and, you know, growing up, I had very little sense, even though I was born here, very little sense of the history of the place. Uh, I knew my street was named El Caminito, sort of like yours. Um, uh, I didn't know what that meant. Um, and of course, you know, that was developed by uh, a, a housing developer, not really related to the, the true history of the state. Uh, later, I lived on Orangewood and, and uh, ran around in citrus fields, throwing grapefruits under cars and uh, that sort of thing. Um, and again, you know, not, not a lot of knowledge of the, the important history of agriculture in the Salt River Valley um, at the time that I was growing up. Um, and it really, it probably, I I'd studied history in college. I went to Arizona State University. Uh, but when I studied history, it never occurred to me to study the place I lived in. And in a sense, I think that had to do with my own sense of this place. I mean, one of the myths of the West and the myths of Arizona is that somehow uh, this was a wilderness before the United States expanded westward. Um, there wasn't anything here, right? Um, and there's this idea of individualism that comes with that, this notion that it was individualistic pioneers who, who braved the wilderness and built something out of nothing. That's where the idea of Phoenix comes from, right? Um, rising out of the ashes. Um, and in reality, I learned uh, that in fact there is an extremely long history here. Um, uh, of course, we used to be part of Mexico. Um, we were part of New Spain, a Spanish colony before that. Uh, and there was an indigenous population here going back uh, 12, 13,000 years, maybe more. Um, a very long history. And I think it wasn't until I finished my college education uh, that I began to kind of look around me and say, you know, there's something about this place I don't understand. Um, and I had to go to uh, University of Texas and get out of Arizona to actually learn something about the history of where I came from. Um, but I think, you know, history is very important. I mean, this myth of the West, this idea of individualism uh, is, is a myth that still supports 
certain political perspectives in the present. The idea that somehow, for example, the federal government uh, <coughs> should stay out of our business, uh, I think is, is a strong sentiment that people have in the state and have had historically. Never mind uh, the role that the federal government played in this conquering of the frontier, some of it rather unpleasant if you think about um, the, the role the military played with the indigenous population, uh, with the conquering of northern Mexico, half of its territory, uh, with the construction of major reclamation project, projects like the Roosevelt Dam and the Coolidge Dam and the Hoover Dam and the Glen Canyon Dam that transformed this place fundamentally uh, with contracts in the World War II period, government contracts for private industry. Uh, private industries didn't do it on their own. Um, you know, groups, uh, companies like Sperry Rand and other companies moved to Phoenix as part of this uh, larger uh, process that the federal government was very involved with. And, you know, you look at the history of the civil rights movement in Arizona and you go back to the 60s and one of the arguments uh, that some Arizona politicians made uh, against civil rights was that the federal government needs to stay out of our business, meaning not force us to desegregate our schools. Uh, we will do it on our own. Uh, we have a history of volunteerism in this state. Um, so I think really for me, it's, it's, it's the myth-busting aspect of history that I find most important and most intriguing, and particularly in these times right now, we can kind of get to that discussion later. No, no. Thank you. Um, let me turn back, Laddie, uh, to you to uh, put a little bit more shape to, uh, uh, based on your research, your study, the Arizona we want, your comment about something happened. Uh, and, and you talked about the supermajority to raise taxes, a simple majority to cut taxes. And it seems like the state has been cutting taxes for, for many years. Uh, people stop talking to one another. Uh, legislators stop talking to one another uh, between parties. Uh, th that gulf has widened. Uh, term limits, uh, you didn't mention that, but certainly that's, that's, that's a topic. That 1986 election, Evan Meekham was elected governor. In 1988, uh, Evan Meekham was impeached by the Arizona House of Representatives by a Republican majority, convicted by a Republican Senate. In the fall 88 election, the Speaker of the House, Joe Lane from Wilcox, was defeated for his reelection. Carl Kanasik, the President of the State Senate, was defeated in his reelection. The composition of the Arizona Legislature at that time in 1988, uh, and I think shaped partly by some of the leaders that have been discussed, uh, led by Burton Barr, it was a time when Democrats and Republicans really focused on solving problems and identifying several problems each year uh, to work on. Uh, the, the moderate middle, that started to go away and has, I think that, that go away function is now completed. Um, Setting up uh, for your, your work, the Arizona We Want, some of the findings in the Gallup poll were quite startling to me, Laddie. Would you talk about your work in the context of that part of our Arizona history? Happy to do so because we also found in looking at this history and I on the reflections, personal reflections I mentioned a moment ago, 
that there was no clear direction for the state. The historic instruments like party platforms don't do it, didn't do it. Candidates, even at the state level, governor and others, would cherry pick an issue or two, but when you went out as a voter, you didn't know where they stood on others. And the discussion, the issues, all focused on the kind of ideological definition of things. How large is government? What should taxes be? And that's what a lot of the decisions turned on. So we at our Center for the Future of Arizona said, surely there is a way to get a clearer view of what the vision for the future should be. And finding none in the political process settled on what was to some a rather radical view, why don't we ask the citizens? What is the Arizona you want? And to that we engaged the Gallup organization. They did the most extensive poll ever done of Arizona citizens. 3,400 citizens were asked. Gallup can do a presidential preferential poll across the nation with fewer than 1,000. And what we learned, we think, is very important. First of all, there are citizens' views on the key issues you would expect. Job creation, very clear characteristics of what they'd like to see. Education, by the way, they think we should be measured by national and international standards, not the trickling dumbing down that has gone on with things like the Ames test and others. Very clear voices. But we also learned something that's kind of fundamental, we think, important. First, Arizonans agree on more than they disagree on the major issues facing us. Regardless of where they live, large city, small community, north, south, Phoenix, Tucson, they agree on more than they disagree, hardly what we see in the political process. Secondly, using a measure that uh, Gallup has perfected over many years, they love this place, attached to this place, passionate about and loyal to this place, far beyond any other part of the country that's used this attachment measure. But, conversely, they are less engaged with their communities than almost any of the other places that are there. And here I say this with some trepidation because I admire the sense of community and the bond that I've always sensed in Tucson. It was true all over the state. I think we know bonds that we know but with all of the new people that have been mentioned here, that we found that citizens are not well connected to one another. Hauntingly, one of the Gallup poll questions was, only 14% of the citizens thought people in their community cared about each other. Secondly, we found that while they loved the natural, resort, the natural areas more than anything else, as they think about the larger issues, they have virtually no confidence in their elected officials. And I kind of started making a parlor game out of it. By the way, only 10% think their elected officials are doing a good job, and far more ominously, only 10% believe their elected officials actually represent their issues, so their interests. So when I speak to legislators, they say, oh, that's the city council, or I speak to the city council, oh, that's the legislature. Sadly, it was across the board. Our conclusion, Jack, was that there is a disconnect between citizen to citizen and citizen to elected official that needs attention, both in terms of the nature of the election process, 
when you have uh, primaries with only 20% turning out and you have districts that are not competitive, uh, you're going to get an outcome that drives them further apart. But also, in a space I had not expected us to enter, citizens need to connect with one another. A level of civic engagement that builds that sense of uh, history and community that have been discussed here this evening um, it, it has to be a much higher priority for us in the future. Well, let me uh, use that as a segue. I, I think we've established that Arizona history does matter. Where do we go from here? Uh, Tom uh, uh, Zollner, I come back to you. You can be a native or a near native and still be a stranger. Uh, Laddie's findings uh, tend to support that, I think. Where do we go from here? How do we solve complex uh, problems? How do we work together? What is the future of Arizona informed by our history? Wow. And I'll start with you, but then I'd like... Uh, yeah, very simple uh, question. Uh, <laughs> and we've got about seven minutes seven to minutes. get this here, one here in. Here is a diagnosis for a perfect Arizona in, uh, in seven minutes. Uh, this is not an easy thing to, uh, to sort of wave a wand and, and get right. Uh, I remember the city of Phoenix, uh, its, its, its planning department uh, decided some years back to create, uh, if only in concept, a series of urban villages is what they call them, no, nodal points uh, within Phoenix in which uh, people would have some semblance of uh, a walkable space where they could meet their neighbors. And this, as you might imagine, was a total failure. Uh, Phoenix is just simply not built for that. Uh, Tucson, uh, thankfully less so. Um, but I, I think the, the, the physical commons, if you like, uh, just the, the bringing of people together when they're not encased in their automobiles. Um, you know, our, our, our urban areas here in Arizona grew up uh, in, in the era of, of the subdivision and of the uh, single family detached ranch dwelling uh, and of the automobile and of the interstate highway. Uh, this is our vocabulary. And uh, it, it, it served us well in some ways. Uh, in other ways, uh, it drove us apart from one another. Um, for me, um, just sort of the, the, the physical togetherness uh, is, is a place to begin that. And so um, this is a dirty word in this town, but Rio Nuevo, you know, what a mess. But it was a good idea and concept. I know, I'm about ready to be the subject of a necktie party for you, <laughs> bringing that one up. But, uh, it, it was a noble intentions behind it. Um, the fact, and I keep coming back to this, the fact that uh, uh, you know Gabrielle and, and, and those others uh, were were attacked uh, for, for doing a, a really a, essentially sort of a physically human thing, just coming together and talking. Um, that to me seemed enormously uh, important that she was doing that and that she made the effort to do that. And so um, our, our elected officials, I think, could, could follow that example of, of going out and, and being just sort of physically present among folks. Um, I, I realize that this is uh, sort of a vague prescription, um, but in, in, in terms of, of, of knowing your neighbor, there's no way to do that um, electronically or at a distance. It must require a face-to-face -face connection. Um, Eric Meeks on the same question, and then Tom Sheridan. Eric? Well, I think, you know, something like this is a good start. Um, the fact that Zocalo Public Square takes, puts the energy out to, to travel around and put this kind of organization together, this kind of meeting together in an historic hotel, it might make us think about another part of 
Arizona's past. You know, it is true. I mean, it, the, the, the way that Arizona developed the, the urban or suburban, I don't know if we have a whole lot of truly urban areas, but suburban develop of Arizona, development of the state uh, does tend to discourage conversation between people. Um, in, even in Flagstaff, which seems like a relatively close-knit community, when I uh, first moved there within a couple of years, uh, we had no sidewalks on our street. And we were right behind the, the grade school and the high school. Uh, and you could not walk from my house two minutes around the corner to the high school without walking in the middle of the street. Uh, I ended up taking this to the traffic commission eventually, um, tried to get people to sign off on the idea of let's build sidewalks so our kids don't have to walk around the corner in the middle of the street uh, as SUVs are driving by and trucks and everything else. Uh, and you know, one of the responses at one point was, well, there haven't been any fatalities. Uh, and of course, that, that <laughs> I thought was an interesting thing to wait for. Um, and I found out that, in fact, there was a compact sign. This was, in essence, um, believe it or not, Flagstaff is small, but in essence, the first post-World War II suburban extension outside of Flagstaff's core. There was a compact between the homeowners and the city that they would never build a sidewalk, right? Because people had a sense that somehow this would promote the kind of urban blight or the kind of misbehavior that they wanted to keep out of, of the city. Uh, and I, there were still people on that street, some of whom had been there uh, for 50 years, um, who didn't want sidewalks. I couldn't even get one street <laughs> to decide that it's a good idea. Um, the only thing they did do was remove the big boulders on the corner so that the kids could kind of walk on the curb uh, to get to the school. Um, so, I mean, that's the kind of sort of individualistic culture, the sort of notion that we don't pay taxes so we don't build sidewalks. Uh, you know, we don't build uh, maybe a, a nice train system between Phoenix and Tucson so we don't have to risk our lives on I-17 as I did yesterday. Um, I'm starting to get a little shy about driving. <laughs> I've been in Flagstaff too long. Uh, I'm, I'm a mountain man now. But anyway, um, like I said, this is a good start. Uh, if we had more more conversations like this, I think would take us good Thank places. Thank you, Eric. Tom Sheridan, we've got a, about two minutes, so you'll have uh, near closing remarks before we open it up to questions mm. from our audience. Well, Tom. one of the things I want to talk about is uh, a, a sense of place, and part of the sense of place is, is the fact that we live in an incredibly diverse state. Uh, Hispanics, Latinos, went from 24% of our population to 32% during the last decade. We have Native American peoples who've been here for thousands of years. And part of coming together has to be crossing those ethnic and uh, racial lines. Right now we're seeing the most sustained assault on Mexican people and Mexican culture since early statehood when it came from the left and the labor unions who were trying to keep Mexicans out of the mines. Now it's coming from the right. There's a fear there that I just don't understand. I, mean, I come from a big Irish Catholic family. I fell in love with Mexican culture. 
when I started to work down at the old Sacred Heart Parish in South Phoenix back in the 1960s. And yet, we've had English-only bills, we've had SB 1070, we've had the state legislature write a bill targeting one ethnic studies program in one school district. And this is a reflection of fear, of xenophobia, and a failure to see people as people. But I think uh, my reasons for hope for Arizona, I just want to mention two things. First of all, I think if, if Mexicanos and Latinos organize and vote in proportion to their numbers, I think politically we're going to be a very, very different state. I think we'll be a swing state, up for grabs. The second thing, uh, uh, Tom, Tom mentioned Rio Nuevo. I've had the honor and the privilege of working with a much more successful project here in Pima County, which is the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan, which is this truly visionary conservation plan that has brought ranchers, environmentalists, realtors together to save open space, protect biodiversity, save working ranches. It can be done and it is being done, but that project has relied on hundreds of people devoting thousands of hours to saving this, this desert that we love. And I think if we want an Arizona that uh, we can be proud of, we've got to have the same kind of effort all over this state. We've got to see beyond the differences We've got to find uh, what we in the collaborative conservation movement call the radical center, which is a term that my friend rancher Bill McDonald, one of the co-founders of the Malpai Borderlands group, coined. This center of people who find common ground, who solve problems, and who respectfully agree to disagree about the issues that divide them so that they can concentrate on the issues that unite them. And that's the only way we're going to uh, have a future here in Arizona that's a future of hope, of inclusion, and I think also of uh, economic prosperity. Thank you, Tom. On that note of optimism, I like uh, radical centrist uh, approach. Uh, we're going to open it to questions now. Um, now, we have roving mics, so if you would raise your hand, we'll get a microphone to, to you, and you can ask the Thank question. You. You're going to describe that. Hello, uh, and good evening. Um, Mr. Jewett just summed it up nicely for me. But at this time, we will be going around, uh, opening it up to you all for questions. Um, just a quick reminder before we get started, tonight's discussion is recorded on both video and audio podcasts. There will be two of us going around with microphones, so if you could please raise your hand and wait for one of us to get to you, be greatly appreciated. Can you hear me? My name is Simon Bolander, and I'm a resident of Tucson for 40 years. And I actually had a business in this Congress Hotel for a period of 12 years. So I'm quite familiar with the inner city, and I have a love an understanding of many things that many people are not aware of. 
the biggest, the biggest thing I could see that we should confront is the water issue. Everybody's states surrounding us have their hands in the water issue, and they're fighting it out dearly. The question is, what plans do we have as Arizonians to replenish our water supply? Well, I, uh, I'm not aware uh, of a great deal of water expertise on this panel. Anybody that wants to tackle that, I can, uh, water is certainly, a, a, it, it is a ongoing issue, it's chronic, uh, it's uh, technical, it's political, uh, it, it, it engulfs the, uh, particularly the western states. Um, yeah, I, I think that maybe I'll, I'll attack the question this way and then, and then ask Laddie to, to jump in here and others. Um, the water issue is one of many highly complex issues facing the state of Arizona. And uh, uh, borrowing on Tom's last comment about finding that radical center, uh, in order to make incremental progress on water, on many of the other issues. It requires the kind of collaboration and cooperation uh, that some would say does not exist today in Arizona. The capacity uh, to deal with issues of this level of complexity. Um, uh, but, but clearly, in terms of our state's sustainability, uh, water is one of those core issues. Laddie? Just a single observation, but I think an important one. In the Gallup, Arizona poll, not only did citizens talk about what they liked most, but what they thought most important to be done. Water management systems in all parts of the state was head and shoulders above any other issue. I think we forget that in the metro areas where there have been water management plans. Large parts of the state don't have it, and citizens across the board identified it as the top priority. Jack, Tom. Well, you know, I write a lot about water in my book. Water is the fundamental issue because without water, uh, there would be no society here in Arizona. And uh, I think we have to face the fact that unless they figure out a way to, to desalinize the oceans economically, we have no more pot at the end of our rainbow. The CAP was it. So now we've got to figure out how we divide the pie, and the pie is shrinking. The Colorado was over-allocated from the very beginning uh, because it was based on two of the wettest decades on record. But as climate change becomes more and more of a reality, and, and anybody anywhere in Arizona has known that we've been through a 15-year drought that unfortunately may be the new normal, we're going to have to decide what we use our water for. And I'm going to say something that uh, the other panel, panelists may not agree with, but in the Salt River Valley, the Salt River Valley is the best agricultural land between the Mississippi Valley to the east and the Central Valley of California. It's the reason why the Hohokam culture pre-Columbian Hohokam culture, built the largest irrigation system in all of North America. Nobody, even in Mexico, 
built bigger canals or longer canals. Uh, right now, we're paving over that agricultural land as quickly as we can as Metro Phoenix grows into this megalopolis. It's estimated to have nearly 8 million people by uh, 2050. Is that a good idea? Are we going to start taking food security more seriously than we do now? Are we going to save some of that prime agricultural land to not only feed ourselves, but to feed the 7, 8, 9 billion other people uh, here on this planet? Right now, the conventional wisdom is that all of that agriculture is going to leave, all of that water is going to leave agriculture and flow to the cities, particularly Phoenix. Uh, I think that, over the long term, is a very bad idea. Question to your right. Uh, my name is Trace English. I'm, I'm a semi-native. We moved here in 1961, so have been here for a while. Um, my question is really uh, looking to what are the underlying issues of why Arizona has, has happened the way it has. And I'd like to suggest that it's less the politics and the, the personalities uh, and ask whether or not some of the key, uh, key factors that define our daily, uh, the physical reality of our daily lives may actually be more important than the things that we usually uh, point to. And I'd, I'd offer a few uh, specific ex uh, brief examples. One is a provision in the state constitution uh, that makes the uh, uh, any contacts relate, contracts related to the that are incidental to the sale of real estate are just you can do that. That's made uh, real estate the most lucrative uh, industry and the most cash rich industry in the entire state, which has had huge political ramifications. Mm -hmm. There's a provision that says that uh, gas taxes can only be used for roads. Well, that's made hundreds of millions of dollars a year available only to build roads. Uh, we have the Central Arizona Project, which Tom was referring to, which allows us to think that uh, we can just go get some more water from someplace else. So I'm wondering whether or not some of the key uh, factors that have determined uh, Tucson's history and our future really are the ones that determine the physical realities of our daily lives. Who would like to take that one? I think in Eric? some ways we, we talked about this a little bit. Um, I mean, certainly the fact that, uh, as, as was just suggested, that real estate uh, has had such power in, in the state and, and the way that real estate has developed has discouraged people from coming into contact with each other historically. Um, that's particularly true in, in the Phoenix area, but I think it's also true uh, e even in Flagstaff and Tucson. Is this not working or? Yeah, sure, I'm sorry. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that's very true. I think the, the issue of water comes down to the, the physical realities of the state as well. Um, so I feel like we've, we've touched upon that somewhat, but the real estate industrial complex, as uh, John Palm, the Arizona Republic, always called it, you know, this was, this is just what we do in Arizona. This is our form of what used to be called smokestack chasing. Um, cities uh, and municipalities going to find sources of, uh, of new revenue, and we have always looked to, uh, to the physical reality, as, as, the, as the gentleman put it, 
of, uh, of a constant sense of new people coming in. And in this way, I think Arizona is sort of a, a representation of the, uh, the hope of the United States in that sense, uh, this, this kind of uh, optimism, this, this national can-do spirit that we've always had. And these are good things in the American weather. You know, we represent that in Arizona. Uh, but it does come with a cost. And I think we discovered that in, in 2008, that uh, this sort of constant diet of sugar that we've been on um, just didn't leave much for, uh, for, for a, a growing boy to, to grow on. You know, we, we have uh, horizons. Those of you who have been to um, the city of Maricopa, Arizona, not to be confused with the county of Maricopa, but the city of Maricopa, where uh, no city had been before, sort of the Butterfield stage stop in 1888, uh, barely uh, 2,000 residents suddenly exploded into uh, what the census called uh, quantitatively the fastest growing city in the United States. Uh, the foreclosure uh, wave hit it like a bomb. And you drive through there today, and it's an eerie landscape of houses with weeds growing up in the driveways, uh, people wondering what hit them. You know, there are homes underwater, and uh, this is a physical reality of uh, the way that we uh, built our economy. It served us well for a while, a lot of us did very well, and then uh, suddenly uh, a lot of us didn't. I have another question on your left. Hi, my name is Shepard Reed, and kind of tying into what we were just talking about, um, I'm wondering if you could comment on kind of the larger demographic demographic forces that are, that are uh, Will will sh I think shift the state? I share the intense frustration with the polarized politics, um, but there's been so much growth already. The growth is stalled because of the recession. I don't know if it'll ever come back the same way. The people that are here are going to have a harder time moving. Maybe they'll stay a little longer. Maybe we won't have such a <laughs> transient population. At the same time, that the Latino population is increasing, and I think that may fundamentally change kind of the, the culture of the state, but also the politics of the state. And I'm wondering if uh, some of you have thought about how that's trending and could comment on it. Thank you. Tom, and then maybe Eric. Well, I, I've already mentioned, you know, that the Latinos are the fastest growing segment of the population. They're the youngest, they're the most fertile, uh, and they're gonna be a force to be reckoned with. I'd also like to say, uh, talk a little bit about Native Americans, because, uh, you know, for most of our history, the Native peoples have been marginalized. But I, I think they're going to be real players in the political and economic life of 20, 21st century Arizona. First of all, are, are because of casino revenues. And uh, when they invest those revenues wi wisely, it's a very good thing for tribes. Secondly, water rights. Uh, Native peoples in Arizona control, at least legally, a lot of the state's water. And that's going to make them pivotal in what's really going to be the fundamental driver of, of, of the Arizona economy and Arizona society, and that is the water game. How do you divide up this pie? Uh, I think you're going to see tribes grow in uh, economic power, in political clout, and possibly there'll be some very interesting alliances between Native peoples and Latino peoples that may make this a very different state in 20 or 30 years. Eric? 
Yeah, I, that's, it's an interesting point because we've talked a lot about the, the, the Latino population, the Mexican-American population in particular. But it is true, the indigenous population uh, has influence in increasingly, I think, well beyond its numbers. I think it's, in fact, today, uh, the Gila River community is voting or has voted, I don't know what the results were, on whether to allow the loop, the 202 loop, uh, to be constructed just south of South Mountain and be connected back into Phoenix. And this is obviously an issue that uh, affects a whole lot of people. Um, but they have control of that land base. Uh, another issue is uh, regarding immigration is the, the, the fact that the Tana Atam, uh, who uh, live very near here, uh, control uh, the second or third largest uh, amount of reservation land in the country. And it's land right on the border. Uh, so the immigration issue is also very tied up uh, with their situation and the willingness of uh, the Tana Optum Nation uh, in, in decisions that they have to make about whether or not they want to build border fences or whether they want to provide free access to people back and forth across the border, how they're going to deal with those issues. Um, so I think it is a, it's good that we sort of come back to that, right? Um, for the longest period of Arizona's history, the indigenous population controlled all of this territory. And I think it is true that uh, they probably will have increasing power in these larger decisions. Question to your right. This will be the last question of the evening before we run out of time. But remember, you're all invited to our reception where you can talk further with our panel and guests on tonight's topic. Also, Antigone Books will be out selling Border Citizens, The Making of Indians, Mexicans, and Anglos in Arizona by Eric Meeks. A Safeway in Arizona by Tom Zellner. And Arizona, A History by Thomas E. Sheridan. Zocalo would like to thank the Hotel Congress for so generously hosting us tonight, as well as give a special thanks to ASU for making this program possible. I'm Jody Nutzer, and I'm with Tucson Arts Brigade. We're a community arts and education organization building community through the arts and facilitating dialogue to produce arts-based solutions to community needs. Um, and we bring together communities, schools, civic agencies, all of this on the ground, in the neighborhoods, every day. This is what we're doing through uh, the arts, murals, even history murals is one of our fortes, uh, dance and theater. And we're also producing a water festival uh, speaking on these issues, March 18th, um, so feel free to come up to me about that. But we're doing um, panel discussions exactly on these issues, but using the arts, because the arts are very exciting to pull people in, to create conversation. And Tucson works at cactus pace, you know, as a lot of Arizona does. And um, people have certain priorities, but they don't put their money to where their priorities are. Um, such as community cultural development through the arts, and I want to give kudos to Roberto Bendoria there, who runs Tucson Pima uh, Arts Council, who has developed also a program on community cultural development. So the question is really, because things tend to move at cactus pace and people are all over on the page, what do you think are more quicker solutions? I mean, we see measurable results through the arts. Um, but what do you see as panelists um, from your fields and perspectives? Because 
We've done, we have Imagine Greater Tucson and all these panel discussions about where Tucson should be going. But where, what are we doing, really? So if you have an answer to that, thanks. Uh, let me start the answer to that and, and other panelists can uh, join in. Uh, you know, at, at the Flynn Foundation, uh, we're a statewide organization. Arts and culture is one of our program areas. Um, most recently, we have uh, collaborated with the Pew Charitable Trust uh, and helped to sponsor a cultural data set project that uh, you, you mentioned measurable results. Uh, Pew is, uh, along with Piper Charitable Trust, uh, uh, headquartered in Phoenix, uh, Flynn, statewide organization, other foundations and philanthropic organizations are very much interested in arts and culture as, as uh, absolutely integral to everything that we've talked about this evening. The measurable results is, is, is the, the tough part. And how do you standardize uh, what each organization is doing uh, so that philanthropic uh, grant making uh, can be measured? Um, so there, uh, we have at the Flynn Foundation just issued on a competitive basis a number of grants uh, to the larger uh, organizations in the state, including Tucson, uh, recognizing that this is absolutely critical and uh, clearly in this, uh, in the last few years, it's been tough. Uh, arts and cultural organizations are struggling, uh, the large ones, the medium sized and the small ones. So I think uh, uh, joining in uh, every arts organization uh, ought to be paying close attention uh, to uh, the, the cultural data project uh, and, and that will be a link to some philanthropic for, uh, funding going forward and uh, hopefully when we get back to a point uh, where there is a greater contribution <coughs> coming from public sources, uh, we may see better days. I'd like to comment on the latter part of your question with all of these things going on. How do we make something out of it uh, for the future? Uh, I think Imagine Greater Tucson is one of the more impressive things I've seen. We've seen it work elsewhere. So I would say to those endeavors, hooray and keep them going. But let me offer an example and with it a suggestion. Well, we came to the conclusion with all of the work we were doing that the strength of the state really lies in the local community. That we've got all of these other complications and trying to impose something from on high is not the answer. So we, looking at all the literature and talking with a lot of people, decided to take a flight. Let's invite all over the state and invite people to come together in their own communities, community defined from neighborhood to municipality, but all kinds within the faith communities, economic development, and ask them collaboratively to work with whomever they wanted and come out with the greatest transformational idea they think that would make their community a better place. And that we'd choose five of them with a national panel, and then we'd go to work to get funding for them to put it into place. We thought we'd get 30 or 40 proposals, because we didn't have any money. We just said, we'll go work with you to try to get it. We got 93. Imagine that, 96 actually, 96, from all over the state. They included some, but not enough 
in the arts and culture area, but they included everything from economic development to education to citizen engagement. Uh, I tell you, reading those gives you such hope for Arizona because these are citizens that came together to do it. Now, we're, we're going to work to make sure the five get it, but we ought to make sure the other 91 get moving as well. And I think from that, you begin deepening the connection to one another, establishing a sense of ownership in where the community is, and I think beginning to build. I know it's the danger of always kind of being a bit Pollyannish about this, but on the basis of that, begin building the kind of foundation that would give us a sharper, clearer direction for the future for the state. The only thing I would add uh, is, you know, we've talked a lot about the radical middle, and I think that's a, a good idea, an interesting idea that, that uh, people do need to come together to come up with real solutions, but it is also true that there are real disagreements. Uh, and sometimes uh, you can be civil and loud at the same time, and maybe we have to get a little louder uh, to make sure that we are putting ideas out there. Uh, you know, one of the points that was made earlier is that Arizona has a very low uh, uh, voting rate. Um, we need more people voting. Um, and, you know, if the people that were already here were voting, I think the direction of the politics in the state would be quite different than they are. Uh, part of doing that is inspiring people and speaking up. Uh, and so I think probably a little more of that, <laughs> being a little louder sometimes not being afraid of perhaps being perceived as being a little uncivil when necessary. And on that subject, actually, yes, this Tom. is sort of an incendiary topic here, but we're talking about Arizona history, and I think it does need to be mentioned here uh, that in Tucson, we recently saw the, the sorry spectacle of books being boxed up in front of students and uh, a vibrant and successful program uh, closed down uh, by state fiat, and uh, I just fail to see how obliterating a sense of history uh, accomplishes much, much of anything, um, primarily that of making us feel like one Arizona, as I think we all want to feel. Uh, I don't see how what's happening in, in, in Tucson Unified School District uh, gets us anywhere closer to that ideal. All right, let's give these gentlemen a hand. All right, thank you all for coming. We'll see you at the reception.